Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining us on another episode of the All Might Be Edified Discussions on Servant Leadership. I'm Keith Pankow, the host and producer of this podcast, and I have the wonderful privilege to be here with Michael Lavoie. Michael Lavoie is a regional vice president of sales at Unity Fiber, specializing in telecom sales management, strategy development, and organizational execution with team development. He is a business professional with a strong interpersonal skills that builds high-performing teams over the last 25 years a demonstrated sales leader with a strong focus on delivering consistent award-winning results aligned with key business initiatives. He has a precise understanding of solution selling in a competitive business environment and possesses an in-depth understanding of emerging strategic technologies along with commercial applications, which results in delivering mission-critical results. He has a Bachelor's of Business Administration from the University of Central Florida and a Master's of Business Administration from Western Governors University. He also serves in a volunteer capacity as an area welfare specialist focusing on disaster relief for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and has over 20 years of experience in organizing disaster relief following hurricanes, tornadoes, and flooding. And that's how I first met Michael is through his work with Helping Hands and Crisis Cleanup and all the work that they do after disasters. And he, in his role now, goes out and trains teams to set up their own command center so they can process hundreds to even thousands of volunteers in a weekend to come in and help provide services to those affected by disasters. And I remember working with him in a virtual format or seeing many things before I personally met him in person, but I remember my first actual personal meeting with Michael because I had just driven back from the Alabama LSU game after the great LSU victory in Tuscaloosa the year that LSU won the national championship. So I was on cloud nine, feeling really good and showed up and got some wonderful training. And I just saw the passion that Michael had for not just helping people, but creating good teams of people to come in and manage these command centers to set up these volunteers for the most success possible. So I'm excited to have you here today, Michael, and welcome. Yeah, thanks for the invite, Keith. I appreciate the opportunity to talk. So, and I didn't realize that you had just come back that from that game. Maybe you did tell me, but I forgot. But yeah, as a an LSU fan, I imagine you were happy. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was doing quite good, and I was there with my friend who was an Alabama fan, so he might have been dragging a little bit more from the long night. But even though it was a long night, I was feeling really good, and it was a wonderful training. That's awesome. Being in the South, you got to be a college football fan. So yes, it's great stuff. It's true. It's it's a way of life. It's hard to imagine a Saturday during the fall without football. That's right. You know, I uh, one year during Michael, which I think you were there for Hurricane Michael as well in Florida. And for Hurricane Michael, I actually gave up tickets to my seats at the LSU Alabama game in Baton Rouge to be there to volunteer. And so I I have a great appreciation for the sacrifices people make to come to those events. And I just know how powerful they are because although I love being at LSU football games, I love being at these events to help people even more. And what are some of your experiences that you've seen with people and and how they you, you make sacrifices to be there or how you've seen it be a powerful experience in their lives? Yeah, I appreciate that question. I think, you know, when a disaster strikes, it usually happens unplanned, you know, and you find people that are willing to go and and help because they see some of the devastation and the destruction that happens in a community and their, their heart goes out to them. And so that's a principle, I think, if you think about it. If you're willing to sacrifice and to help and to serve, it's usually inconvenient. 
uh, an inconvenient time. And so you have to give up something usually. And, and usually it's just time and resources. You know, you mentioned Hurricane Michael. That was the big one. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Category five uh, hurricane hitting the Gulf Coast of Florida. And 24 hours earlier, it was forecasted as possibly a, a three, maybe a high two. And so it amped up exponentially very quickly. And that really caused a, a lot of folks some angst because I don't think a lot of people evacuated as much as they probably should have if it was going to be a, a cat five all the way around. So caught people off guard and uh, I was able to be deployed within 36 hours after landfall. That storm hit on a Wednesday and you know I was there on Friday and seeing the destruction there and the amount of teamwork that had to be formed pretty quickly was amazing to see. When you get, you know, 20 or 25 individuals at a what we call a command center, which is basically a supply depot where we process uh, workers and, and outfit them with supplies and work orders that they can go out and, and work, it has to be an efficient process. And, and so that's my principle that I've always looked at is how efficient can we be in getting those workers checked in into that supply depot and out so they can be out in the community working. And it's amazing to see when you work through the structure. The other principle that I found is flexibility. In the South, we have a saying, there's more than one way to skin a cat, right? And I think for me, I am not baked into one process per se. And uh, I have learned over time that there are people smarter than I am. And so when I come into an area, even though I've done it a million times, I try to listen because there might be a better way that I didn't think about. And nine times out of 10, there is on a certain process and I will adopt that all day long. And I think as a leader, that's probably a good principle to think about is to be a little bit more malleable and in your thinking and be open to change if it is the best way. And you see that in technology and, and my normal career, if you will, my day job in technology, it's always changing. It's always getting better and you cannot be stuck in the past and doing things. And so you have to be open to maybe changing your ways and changing your thinking on a process. So those are a couple of principles that I learned, especially during Hurricane Michael. And then I've tried to adopt in all of the disasters after that, Irma, Sally, you know, Laura, you know, all of these major storms that have come through the South have taught us principles like that each time. Yeah, I agree. And I love some of those thoughts and I want to dive a little deeper in those, but I want to give a little background information for the listeners. For many of you who might not be experienced with hurricanes, a cat three is usually the decision point that people make for evacuation. So when we talk about a high cat two to a high cat three, that's really when you're at a very indecisive point in your own personal decision to evacuate. So that's very important to understand where people were at the night before they go to sleep and then it comes in as a five, that's a very different environment. And it's a very difficult decision to make because most people can withstand under a cat three by staying and it won't be too damaging. So I, I know a lot of times people are critical of people not evacuating. I want to kind of give some background there so that those listeners that don't have that background can understand that it really is a truly challenging decision to make at that point at a high cat two, whether you should go or whether you should, you should stay. 
The other thing about evacuating is, you know, that's a, a logistical light nightmare, really. You're leaving your home, you know, with everything behind. And so that's scary for some people. But you may get out on the road and it, traffic is uh, an issue. The roads get congested. Where are you going to evacuate to? The hotels may be full. And so there's a lot of logistical things about evacuating and just not as easy as you think to get up and leave. And so uh, it's important to think about that from the outside. Yeah, I agree. Thanks for that input and that expanding that on that a little bit more. And the other thing I wanted to point out was just how short a time that Michael and his team have to train people or me and my team, when I've come in and set up command centers to set things up, usually we bring in teams to set up a command center on Thursday night. Some people don't arrive till Friday morning. The volunteers start coming in Friday evening and we want them out working first thing Saturday morning. They work all day Saturday and they work as long as they can work on Sunday to have a safe trip home. So usually that's around lunchtime that we cut them off on Sunday, depending on where they're driving to and from. So it's not a lot of time to get, you know, hundred of workers out in the field. And so that efficiency that Michael talked about is super important because you're getting people that you may have never met before on Thursday night to gel a team together. And I really appreciate how Michael talked about being willing to adapt. And I saw that in Hurricane Ida a little bit as I watched my wife was on the command center this go around. I was out in the field, you know, working in my little branch in Louisiana because my own area was impacted. So I was out helping the members of my community quite a bit. So I didn't go to the command center like I normally would. And my wife was there and she told me about how they adapted and use Slack ahead of time to start to build this teamwork throughout the week so that when they arrived on Thursday, they could just come up and be high performing right from the get-go. And, and I've seen examples when we were at Hurricane Laura, as Michael brought in the team together and half the people have been trained, half the people hadn't, and he really quickly kind of, all right, well, I can see that we need to start organizing really quickly. So he kind of stopped his training and organized first and then went on to more specific training. And so I love that you talked about being flexible and I've seen that in action and I really appreciate that. How else do you, and when you come to you know these environments or even in your professional life, how do you look at teams and make the most of them as you bring these competing interests and diverging people and diverse backgrounds together? Yeah, I think that's important to note that when you first come into a situation, not knowing what the skill level of the team members are going to be, and you kind of figure that out pretty quickly as you're going through the process, but you as a manager or a leader, if you will, needs to recognize right off the bat that you're in the directing mode. And it's okay because you're in the beginning of the process. I think a lot of successful servant leaders, if they recognize where their team is at, what stage of development they are, and you can apply the certain management skill or level at that point. For instance, if you realize a person's they got it as you observe them early on, they, they understand what the end result that you're going for, you need to take a step back and let them, you know, run with that. You don't need to be directing, you know, at that point. You can let them go and you can go on to the next team or the next process and perhaps observe them and maybe you need to spend a little bit more time in another area. And I think that's the biggest key. When you delegate a task to a certain individual and you have confidence and trust that they can take that baton and run with it, then you need to back off and let them perform. And if something goes a little squirrely and you see something that needs to be corrected, don't hesitate to step in and, and correct it. But otherwise, 
you know, you need to you need to stand back into the shadows and and let them excel because you've trusted them. They have the right skill level, and you need to let them go. On the flip side of that, you know, again, you may need to spend more time with someone that's struggling in a process that maybe doesn't understand the end result, and that's okay. What I found in the command center operation is getting the right people leading the team in the swim lane. We call it the swim lane. You know, you stay in your swim lane. If you're over supplies and you're over logistics, you stay over there. If you're over work orders in the administrative part, you know, you stay in your lane and you work together. Yeah, there's a little bit of overlap and everybody's there to help and fill in the gaps, but that's okay. And I think the biggest part of filling a command center staff and even a team at a work level is knowing what skills you need and putting the right people in the right place. And then don't be afraid if you found that maybe the right individual is in the wrong place is to make a change and make it quickly. Because guess what? Bad news doesn't get better over time. <laughs> you know, it's, it's not going to improve itself. And so you as a leader need to recognize that pretty early and don't be afraid to make changes. Yeah, I agree with that. And that is very true. And then another thing we say in, in my world in the Coast Guard is you never want to be the senior person with a secret. So you always want to share that information up the chain. So you you spread that liability out a little bit. And, and you also invite better discussion and dialogue about ideas and how to fix those problems by doing so, I think. You know, in my leadership experience, and one of the things I've learned over time is that you'll find a lot of people that they don't necessarily empower their people to the fullest capacity because especially in situations like the command center environment where you need efficiency, there's oftentimes where the leader says, well, I can just get it done better and faster if I do it myself, but that's not building people up and empowering them. And so how do you take someone, you know, maybe with that mindset and help them learn to empower others or to be okay that something might be a little bit more delayed or might need a little bit more hands-on training to kind of nurture someone along? How do you kind of implement that in your own leadership and teamwork building? Yeah, that's a, a great attribute to have as a leader to recognize that. And I think what I've done in the past is if I see someone who's trying to do it all, and, and I've had those situations where you have an individual who understands maybe the perhaps the work order process and they you know they want to assign the work orders they want to claim them they want to print them out they want to stack them and and they want to you know do pretty much everything from soup to nuts and i have pulled an individual aside and say you know you're you're robbing this other person of an opportunity to serve number 1 but number 2 this won't be the only disaster we work Okay, and so you, you have to think about it. This isn't the last storm that we're going to have. And so it's important that the more people that are trained and exposed to the process, the better off we are. For instance, during Hurricane Michael, uh, at the height of that event in week four or week three, I think it was, we had eight command centers operating. And just think about that. That's uh, over 200 people 
deployed at eight different locations, managing three to 4,000 workers, you know, coming into the area. You got to have people that know what they're doing. You know, I can't be in eight places at once. And so I have to duplicate myself. And that's my job every time I go into a disaster area is to make sure that knowledge is being transferred. And so you as a leader need to recognize that and don't be afraid to pull them aside and say, hey, it's not about just this event. It's about future events. I really like that long-term vision that you employ there. And a lot of times the people that are prone to service might have roles in their own community that will pull them away if their community is impact. Like myself for Hurricane Ida, I had specific responsibilities that I had as the branch president over the Meet branch. And so I had to do certain things differently than I would normally do if I were deployed out to assist a different area or another stake. And so, you know, it changes the dynamic and we had to adapt since it was our stake that was impacted there in Louisiana, we had to adapt and assign different people to assist in the command center. And, and so that's, it's a very important principle to understand because each storm is going to be a little, each disaster is going to be a little different. It's going to require different skill sets, flood events, very different than a hurricane Michael, a high wind disaster. So, you know, understanding those and the teams that you need to bring together. And one of the things I've also recognized is too often we look as we build these volunteer components together, we look at who should be the team leaders is who might have the best construction background. And I've often wondered if sometimes we take a flawed approach to that because usually the people with great construction backgrounds, they want to go out there and get to work. They're skilled. They know what they're doing. They can knock out a ton of work orders in one weekend. They can get a ton of roofs tarp. They can remove you know multiple trees in just a, a day. And so they want to get to work. And so I think sometimes we have to recognize that skills are not always transferable. And sometimes we need to look at better leadership attributes to manage those teams so that they can kind of more consistently work together and pull the other team members into the fold that might not have as many skills and help them prepare for future disasters, as you mentioned. Yeah, I think it's important to, to note the dynamics of a team. And I've, I've seen this at work in my professional life. I, as a leader, may not know the detail on how to perhaps process an order to the level that a rep does, okay? And because I don't live and breathe it every day. In my past life, you know, it's like riding a bike. You know, you get on and you and you ride the bike. But if you haven't rode the bike in a while and you try to get on, you may not <laughs> pedal as much as you, you used to. And so as a leader, you need to recognize that. But you don't need to get down into the weeds, per se, I think finding the right person to handle the right tasks is probably the, the best leadership quality you can have, but not necessarily doing it yourself uh, and getting it done. The other thing is growth. You know, you as a leader, as a servant leader, it, your number one goal is to make sure that people are growing. And if you're doing everything and just getting it done, then you're robbing that, that individual and that team member's ability to learn and grow. And so that's the part that uh, I think that, that characteristic of how can I help this person be in my shoes one day? And if you go to work every day thinking of that, then you'll have a great team of high-performing individuals who are very competent in the skill level that you want to accomplish the goal that you want. And it's okay. It's okay. In fact, I've learned over over the years that a lot of times, you know, the leader is not getting the accolade that the individual is, and that's okay. 
I had a, uh, a rep on my team late last year, just a few months ago, closed one of the largest deals in our company history. And I wasn't mentioned at all, although I was right there shoulder to shoulder with him in the background, helping him strategically navigate the deal to get the contract. And as his regional vice president, you know, that's my role. But he got all the limelight and he got all the accolade, which is what needed to happen because he he was the rep on the account. But some leaders can't handle that. You know, some leaders can't handle the fact that when things go wrong, they look at you. But when things go right, they're not looking at you. <laughs> you know, you don't get the, the praise usually. So there is uh, there's those characteristics of a good leader that it's okay to be in the shadows. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that. I, I want to step back before I talk on that a little bit and just reemphasize that, that you've said it twice now that when we don't build people up, when we don't prepare them, when we don't train them, when we don't help them become their best selves, we're robbing them of future potential. We're robbing them of future opportunities. We're robbing them of be- helping them become their best selves. And I just really wanted to reemphasize that point you made because I think it's so powerful. And then kind of going back to this principle and characteristics of a leader, that's so important to be able to swallow your pride a little bit and recognize that it's about you. It's about the team you're building. And you're right. That is, that's very hard for people to realize. I had an experience when I was stationed at a unit, an operational unit, and then in the Coast Guard, operational units are expected to be ready for any number of disasters or contingencies that could arise. So we don't necessarily export our training out to the rest of the Coast Guard as much, unless it's a wide scale, massive disaster, and they're really requesting help. Normally, a lot of our Our expertise that comes to support these big contingencies will come from staff elements or things that aren't as operationally focused because they have more room to give up administrative functions to support those. But we we become this high performing team that was really good at teaching crisis management because we'd done all these exercises. We had a lot of actual real world experience. And so we were being asked to go support other exercises and other events to do coaching and training. And I had a, an executive officer that was kind of frustrated that our small unit that was operationally focused had to give up of ourselves. And I tried to explain to them that this was actually a credit to the work we we're doing, that people were coming to us. And that if we had a disaster, people would be quick to come to us because they know they could learn from us. And so although it wasn't the norm, we actually had created an environment where we'd shown other people our value through exporting our abilities and teaching and training in a way that probably expanded our ability to be prepared, not necessarily lessened it. And that was very hard for this leader to understand that they were taking on all this extra liability and risk for this abstract concept of value. And I, so I see here what you're saying that sometimes understanding how to put all these things in the proper buckets, if you will, to recognize that, you know, the work we do doesn't necessarily get the praise and focus but if we're doing it right, it's going to have amplifying effects. Yeah, it'll yield the result that you want. And and that's hard sometimes for people to realize the congruent relationship of shadow leadership and servant leadership rather than being in the in the limelight. And uh, you, you see that in, in some folks and some organizations and some teams where there's conflict and you, you can't handle that. And so it does take a special person to be a leader a good leader and, uh, and recognizing that. There's no doubt that creating a high performing team is a difficult endeavor in and of itself, but I'm always amazed at the 
exponential negative influence a person can have when they start to go down a negative path or they become toxic or not even if they're fully toxic, if they're just not buying into the team. And so they're, you know, through little ways, pulling the team away from their goal. So that has a a compounding effect on all the members of the team. Just one person can really derail efforts. So how do you approach an environment where you have maybe someone who's not fully on board with the process or, you know, at the other end of the spectrum, who's become fully toxic? You know, what are the, some of the things you do as a leader to take that team and recenter it back on its path to becoming high performing? Well, I think it's important to recognize it pretty quickly, but I've learned that if you do checkpoints, meaning that you are having over communication and team meetings, for instance, in a command center disaster relief environment where we are working, you know, kind of for three days and, and doing as many work orders as we can. We'll have a staff meeting in the morning, a staff meeting at night to kind of talk through the challenges and the processes. But during the day, you're doing one-on-one meetings and you're pulling people aside for five to 10 minutes and you're asking them how they're doing. And if you've observed something that's kind of off kilter, you directly hit it on the head right then and there. You know, like I said earlier, bad news doesn't get better over time. And so you have to correct it quickly. And you as a leader recognizing that is important. Now, if the correction that you're giving and the counsel that you're giving in a loving you know, manner isn't working and the decision has to be made that perhaps that person needs to move to another part of the team or get eliminated from the team altogether... That is a decision that's hard, but needs to be made, and and a leader needs to do that. And so you can't be afraid of confrontation. Uh, You can't be afraid of of making those hard decisions. And I think if it it got to the point where you had to eliminate a team member from the team, then it should be a foregone conclusion of everybody on the team. It shouldn't be a surprise, you know, at that point. And, And so what I'm saying is you give that person a chance to correct themselves. And if that chance isn't taken and it's repeated over and over again, you know, in in baseball, we're only given three strikes, right? And so that's probably a good rule. And uh, so don't be afraid as a leader to make that change. Yeah, I like that. And as you were talking, using that baseball analogy, I like the thought of, you know, three strikes, but, you know, if we're really trying, we're swinging that bat and we foul it off, you know, we're given a little bit another chance. So there's three strikes with a little bit of room for, you know, if you're really trying, there's some room there to adapt. And I, and I going back to your previous point of robbing people of opportunities, when we allow someone to stay on a team or we don't confront them, we're robbing that person of opportunities to become the best selves, but we're also robbing the rest of the team of allowing them the environment that allows them to perform at their best level. And so I think that as we take that mentality, kind of that long range focus you had of preparing for future and events and recognizing that we're not just there handling that one time, that one moment, that one project, but we're looking at how do we're building the team long-term? How are we not robbing them? I think that's super important. And I'd like to give 
the challenge for this episode based on that concept, I challenge everyone to think about how you in your work environment or with your teams can create checkpoints. I like this idea that Michael talked about of having these regular checkpoints, individual and team-wise, how you can create checkpoints with the people around you to reassess where you're at, to reassess the environment that you work in, and then to make course corrections as needed to allow the greatest opportunity for every member on your team to perform at their best level so that you don't rob them of their greatest potential. You know, uh, parenthood uh, gives you those lessons. Interesting enough, when you're when you're dealing with you know five to seven to nine year olds, and they do something wrong, usually the parents' first reaction is to correct that child and say, "What are you doing? Why'd you do that? You know, don't do that. Do this." And I learned uh, over the years, obviously with experience, and so they don't tell you this ahead of time. But <laughs> um, you, as a parent, to really ask yourself. When, when a child does something wrong or does something contrary to what you were kind of hoping for, are you asking yourself, did I teach them correctly? You know, instead of looking outward to them, look inward and say, did I do everything as a leader, as a parent, to teach them and to train them in the proper direction? And if I did that, then you can go and correct but if you didn't, which is probably nine times out of 10, you didn't explain it right, or you didn't teach it right, or maybe you didn't communicate it right, then you need to go and correct your mistake because that's your mistake as a leader. And so that, that's important to note because if you're seeing something that is not happening the way that you want to see it happen, the result, then look inward first. And if you've done all the teaching and the training and the explaining and the directing, then you can look outward to that individual and start talking to them about what their actions are. Otherwise, you need to correct yourself. That's a really great point that to take a step back and evaluate your own ability as a leader and the things that you've implemented and emphasized. And, you know, sometimes we have a clear cut vision in our mind, but we haven't yeah. always put that out as an example. And that's very important to think about and, and have that self-evaluation and, you know, meditate on the fact of what you've shown and what you've taught before you really start to hold those team members accountable. Because in some cases, you may need to re-evaluate and re-change and correct what you're doing so that the team can function better. And it's not always the fault of the team member, right? We have, we have a leadership. We, when we talk about leading others, we always talk about, is this a knowledge issue? Or a desire issue. We Two call it uh, skill or will. Do they skill have the or will, skill yep. Or the will. And if they have both, then they're probably performing. But if they're not performing, is it a skill issue or is it a willpower issue? Yeah, and as we look at that, because those two different things require two different approaches. You know, you're not going to approach a skill issue the same way you'd approach a will issue. And, mm -hmm. you know, that's not to say that if someone doesn't have the will, they're not they can't be helped along, right? Sometimes it just takes the right type of interaction or training or course correction to, to realign them. And in some cases, as we are seeing with this global pandemic, the will issue might not even be related to work. It might be a life event. Yep. There's a major life stress going on. There could have been a death in the family. There could be you know other things going on that we're not aware of. So there's also an opportunity to re-engage through those checkpoints that you mentioned to make sure that we're in touch with where our team members are so that we can recognize if the will is related to their life events or if it's related to the work in and of itself. 
Absolutely. And that's so important as a leader to recognize that and to utilize whatever power you have in the lane that you're supposed to use it in to get the result that you want. I love that. I love that reference of swim lanes. It helps me focus too, as I'm, as I'm looking forward. Well, we've been going for a little while now, and I really appreciate your wonderful insights you've provided and some of these great thoughts. Before we wrap up, do you have anything else you want to close with or leave these listeners with to move on with their, their own path in leadership? No, I, I thank you, Keith, for uh, allowing me to just ramble on about servant leadership. It's one of my favorite topics. Tony Dungy, famous football coach, who's now a commentator on television and football. He wrote a book about servant leadership that I read years ago that I really enjoy. I recommend that read. But it just talks about being an empathetic leader. And, um, you know, me being a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, I try to emulate the Savior, Jesus Christ, in, in all that I do, and it, whether it's at work or responding to a disaster. And that's what he would do. He would empathetically listen and then apply the leadership trait necessary, depending on the level of where that individual is. So uh, love talking about it, love trying to take a step back and implementing it and all that we do, whether it's in our families or at work or at church. So appreciate the opportunity. Thanks so much for that. And I'll just add one final thought on just because I love the opportunity to help serve after disasters It's one of the most powerful experiences that you can have in your life. My most sacred experiences that I've had in my life so far. So if you have an opportunity or you hear of a disaster and you're ever looking for a reason to go out and serve, I'm sure Michael can get you employed as he responds to almost every disaster out there in the South. And I try to get out to as many as I can with my work, but not nearly as many as Michael. And we would love to have you join us so that you can see the true impact. And I'll just leave you with this final thought as Michael referenced the Savior. When we go out there and we help these people, they're just at their wits end. They're at the lowest point of their life. Almost always when we're done working, we have a moment, we come together, maybe we say a prayer, maybe we don't, but you just feel the love that all those people have for one another in that situation. And that's an experience that's it's hard to have outside of that environment to have that level of just caring for another person. And when you have that, it helps you have that empathy that Michael is talking about at a greater level. And so whether it's a disaster or not, look for ways to go out and serve people that truly need service that could never do anything to repay that. And that's when you'll, you'll get an opportunity to understand these principles in a way that I just can't explain in words. So Thanks for joining us on another episode of the All Might Be Edified Discussions on Servant Leadership. Please share, like, subscribe, rate the podcast, and also please be willing to make recommendations for people that you would think would be good to hear from for others to so that we can share these wonderful voices and examples with all the people around us and have a wonderful day.